This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Therese Bassler, a leadership coach. She grew up in the Helderberg Hilltowns, lived and worked in places around the world, and is now settled on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Bassler says that when she is coaching someone, she looks for the red thread, that thread that runs through somebody's life story, even if it looks a little disconnected and wild. Her own red thread may be providing service to others. In 1989, she was in China during the weeks leading up to the Tiananmen Square protests and was there on the evening and the morning of the massacres. Tell us a little about growing up in the Helderberg Hilltowns. Okay, um, really nice to be with you today. And as I haven't been in the Hilltowns anytime during um, COVID, just nice to connect and sort of give a wave back to um, a place that's very dear. I, um, I'm a proud Hilltowner, a proud native Hilltowner. And the Basslers were um, one of the early um, uh, families, farm families that settled after the first peoples. Um, so coming from the Palatine as um, uh, uh, settlers to, um, to upstate New York and to the Hilltowns. And that was something that was um, always shared with me and, um, and I, I continue to feel proud of. And having families on both sides, both maternal and paternal, who'd been there for several generations, meant that I had a very supported um, uh, upbringing. Um, I had, uh, lots of grandmothers, great and regular when I was born and they all, I was the first grandchild on either side of the family. So I benefited from a lot of attention and love and teaching, which is with me, um, which is with me still today. So I, um, uh, attended school at Bern Knox, um, and also formative for me was that from a young age, as a lot of us did in the hill towns, we got jobs. So uh, at 14, I was working at um, what was then um, Zwickelbauer's Hofbrau on Warner's Lake. And um, this was it lasted for several years. I it helped me work my way through university. And um, and what I remember was all the people from off the hill who were our customers who came up to, uh, to be at the lake, to eat dinner. And, and one, um, one thing that was very formative that happened for me there is that a couple came every Sunday night from Altamont, the Cochran's. Um, and, and Jim Cochran was a professor at Albany, uh, at, uh, what was then SUNY Albany. And he, we became friendly and he at one point let my parents know that, um, uh, it would be a good idea if I um, got into a program at, that SUNY had at the time um, for um, for high school seniors to combine their last year of high school with their first year of of um, university. And so that's what I did. Um, what I loved about that program, which was funded um, through the Carnegie Foundation, was that embedded in it um, was a philosophy of community service. 
And while I understood community service from growing up in a small town, um, this got me thinking in a different way. And um, while I probably wasn't ready emotionally and as an adolescent to leave, to leave my town, my family, it was a little wild in Albany at that time. I did leave at 16 and, and studied in that program for a year and then um, wanted to travel further afield. So I found an overseas program, which was actually in Montreal, Canada. And so I then went on to study and complete my undergraduate degree in Montreal, which felt like a, an even bigger world and, and is, was then and is still a very international multicultural city. So, so those were, that was kind of an, uh, a Reader's Digest version of the early, the early pathway. Interesting. I, there are so many things in there I didn't know about. So you went to McGill and from there, what, what was it that you studied? What did you major in? Well, here begins the, I suppose, what I now own as a kind of eccentricity um, or uh, a not always fitting in the box. Um, there were so many interesting things to study there that I, I studied Latin, which I didn't get at Bern Knox. I studied filmmaking. Um, I was very interested in the classics in Latin and Greek peoples, um, Roman history, um, and then a lot of literature as well. And so um, what I was able to do was, was call, the, call the degree um, uh, literature, rhetoric, and communications. Also sort of speech making was, was kind of in there. So it was a hodgepodge degree. And I did the same thing uh, at, with my master's degree. I basically um, stepped out to learn things that I was curious about and then and then discovered how they fit together. And I think I think I'm still doing that today. I think so, too. When I was just trying to look at different parts of your life from an outsider, it seems like they're all so diverse. But yet there are these common links. And one of them, I think, might be this early, early program of community service, because you have so much that you're always giving out from yourself in the different things you do. But um, let's just talk a little about your travel and your career and how how it launched. Sure. Um, uh, and and I'll, I'll just introduce a, um, a term that I use often with the people I'm coaching. I, I look for the red thread. I look for that thread that runs through somebody's life story, um, even if it looks a little disconnected and wild. And so, so that, that red thread, I think, was, was these little encounters or these little interactions that, that may not look like a lot, but they're life-changing. And, and somebody had a, a good saying about these um, small, small opportunities are what big opportunities look like when they're young. And so I think, I think the career shifts, I very rarely applied for a job. Um, uh, the, the career shifts, the learning shifts come from meeting someone who presents themselves as a teacher or who I convinced to be a teacher. And very often the big career shifts have come from volunteering. So 
I was um, in Washington, D.C. I left Montreal to go seek my fortune in Washington. Big city, lots of smart people, um, lots of big egos. And so I was I was freelancing, um, using my editorial skills, my English language skills. And I met someone who was authoring a book and also happened to work during the day at the World Bank. So I helped her finish her book. And and then there was a project in the bank that she asked me to compete for just a short term project. So I did that. And then once in, I was really interested in what the bank was starting to do after the Kissinger visits to China. And uh, so I I saw a job advertised on the China team for someone who could edit the economic reports that were coming out that everybody was reading because information about China was new. So I I knew I didn't stand a chance. I didn't have conventional economics degrees and and other things that others had. I wasn't a diplomat's daughter. I I hadn't studied at Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard. Um, So I said, I thought, what the heck? And I, I designed a brochure on myself. And so I got called in for interview and the the hiring person said, we just had to see who would do this, you know, <laughs> um, and I was hired. And 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 so that was the break, if you will, into um, really interesting international work. And then after some years of work on China and um, uh, and the experience of being present uh, uh in the weeks before the Tiananmen Square um, events of 1989, um, the very real events, uh, and also being there on the evening and the morning of the um, Tiananmen Square um, massacres, um, uh, I was disoriented for a while. I would say that's that we didn't know it as PTSD at the time, but I, I definitely had a case of post-traumatic stress um, disorder or post-traumatic stress injury, um, uh, also also a term we use. And so I was lost for a while. And it happened later that year in in, uh, 1989 that the Berlin Wall fell. And suddenly people like me who had, from the West, who had firsthand experience in countries um, where school systems were um, communist uh, in their orientation or tied with communist economies, suddenly our skills were in demand. So at that point, I shifted work into um, the part of the World Bank that dealt with these new transition societies. And um, uh, a lot of my colleagues um, who were who were more senior, who were men, who were men in the hierarchy, they got the um, the trips to Poland and Hungary, Czech Republic, um, uh, even Moscow, other places. I got the places where the hotels were really cold and had no electricity, and also where society was really wounded. So I was posted to work in at that time in in Romania and Albania, and those societies, those countries became huge professional teachers for me. Um, uh, when, when a society is really wounded, um, when we get to a kind of a breaking point, um, ironically, this is a time when 
very positive revolutions are possible. So big change is possible. And, and I was privileged to work with visionaries who saw a better day for their schools, for their country um, in both of those places. And, and I stayed colleagues with, with those um, uh, people in those countries for a long time. And, and I moved on as history moved on. Um, I moved on to work in other places of transition society. I lived in Kosovo for a year, um, went in with the NATO um, troops um, to support colleagues there. By this point, I had, I had volunteered for um, George Soros and the Open Society Institutes um, uh, in Albania and, and helped put together a program there. Um, and I took a year's leave of absence, which turned into 11 years leave of absence. <laughs> so that was my shift. Um, I, I agreed to be a volunteer uh, going into Sarajevo during the war um, for, for George Soros and programming money because I was used to, by this point, I was used to working in multi-million dollar programs. And, and this was something he needed at the time because his, his gifts were becoming larger. His philanthropy was becoming larger. So, um, so it was that volunteer trip. Um, I, I didn't tell my parents back in the hill towns that I was doing this until after I got back. And, um, uh, and then when my mom saw a picture of me in a flak jacket, because that's what we needed to wear in Sarajevo, she, she's, I think she was, she was grateful that I, that I hadn't let her know. Um, and, and this, this work in societies with people, with, with visionaries who are working at extreme emotional edges, I was one and I was supporting those who did that, was a feature of my career um, uh, for many years. And keeping myself whole and supporting courageous others to, to stay whole is an important red thread. Um, uh, early on, it was it was quiet and personal. When I came back from the Tiananmen Square trip, there was there were no resources at work to help me. I stayed I stayed at home for a week, and somehow got myself out of it. Um, uh, there wasn't even a name for it, and it was more or less stay home on, until you feel like coming back to work. Now, international organizations um, are much more clued up about what needs to be done to support people at extreme emotional edges. And COVID has pushed that even further. Um, uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a really, a really good development in the last couple of years. I call it the mainstreaming of trauma. And I think that's what's happened to our society. You mean that our society as a whole is dealing with trauma in so many different ways. And I see, because I had not seen the red thread. I was puzzled as I was writing out some questions last night, how things like pottery fit in. Is that, is that part of like a self-sustaining because you're creating things? Tell us how you became a potter and how and why you became a potter. Sure. And I'm sure you can see me light up because it, it gives me immense joy. Um, 
so some early early memories um uh I was I was in elementary school in Bern and we had we had these re- readers and we had we read one day about um uh blue willow wear dutch blue willow wear there's lots of it in upstate new york the um blue and white dishes with three mandarins walking across a bridge and i went to my grandmother's house after school and i said mimi there's this really cool story there were these there's a story on dishes and and she said i think that's what we have up in the attic and uh my great grandmother um who lived in westburn had cared for um the home of someone in the hill towns someone who came from new york city as as i was told and they cared so lovingly for the homestead that these folks were only visiting part time that they were given this massive set of dishes and um my great grandmother only used them for special occasions and so those dishes were the dishes i'd read about at school and the three mandarins were very exotic walking across this bridge in this asian scape and i i i on some level i internalized that pottery had a personality could tell a story had a life force and so when i traveled i i collected and i looked for dishes pottery always drawn to that anima that force in it and it wasn't until i sort of settled down in my 40s that i ever had the life that would allow me to take pottery lessons um but i had this kind of dream of holding a bowl that i made in my hands so i started late i never expected to go too far with it uh found my teachers um in newfoundland in spain in new mexico kept on working at it and then the house got so full of my work and the clay habit got so expensive that i eventually started to um to out myself as a professional um a professional potter and um uh and then i found that pottery could be used as a force for good so just to kind of fast forward to covid times um i moved here um just as covid started i didn't know anybody and um i began to make little vases with faces in them or masks on them um for the flowers from uh shelt what i called sheltering at home gardens and um because i now pot from my home it was possible cost wise to use these as a fundraiser so so i've moved from here in british columbia um and under covid times i've moved from one little project at a time to another that feels like it can do some good and and one can always choose um a charity for for that margin of artisanal work where we can give so just before the holidays a local cafe let me use their outdoor patio and um uh we hosted a pottery pop up um and it's interesting how things resonate i said okay uh 
a percentage of sales proceeds can go to the extreme weather response. We've had floods and landslides that you probably read about in British Columbia. So we'll put a humble little portion, you know, of this little one day sale into the Canadian Red Cross. Well, a couple of days before the pop-up sale, um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, announced together that they're going to match dollar for dollar every Canadian's donations to the Canadian Red Cross. So this is my territory. I love that. <laughs> so with pottery, um, uh, the dollar that I was able to donate was matched by the federal government and by the provincial government. And to me, that's that's pottery as a force for good. And that's and, and that and now you see, Melissa, there comes the red thread again. It ties together, even when it looks very diverse. Um, if you're if you're living to your core values, the red thread just kind of lines up and keeps keeps carrying on. Yes. Community service is front and center for you. How is it that you ended up in British Columbia? Um, I. Um, my husband my husband is Canadian. We met over 30 years ago at McGill um, and had different careers and re-met later in life. And um, uh, for about 10 years, we managed a life where we had a home in, in Bern um, and a home in Newfoundland. And um, uh, we realized this just wasn't going to work for our old age. <laughs> and, um, and so we set about a multi-year process of, of, of finding the next right home. And this is painful in the heart because you have connections to place. Um, uh, my husband had strong connections to Atlantic Canada. He was born in Nova Scotia, but we said, let's look at this, Let's let's look at this um, from a perspective of what sustains us. And neither of us saw ourselves as people who we, we, we just don't relate to the word retired. Um, my husband's an oceanographer. He's very involved in climate change. He works internationally. Um, so a goal for us was to live in such a way that we could be well and continue to do work in the world. And so um, for, for several years, we started taking sabbaticals. My, uh, my husband could get sabbaticals from the university and we would go live in places that were on our short list. And the short list got down to Santa Fe, New Mexico um, as a place where we felt we could be physically well, um, uh, great arts, great arts and culture scene um, and um, uh, British Columbia. And my husband had done his PhD um, here in Vancouver. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very honest. We, we, we said the only deal breaker, so this was back in 2016, the only deal, Santa Fe was winning out. The deal breaker would be um, if the States went toward a presidency under Donald Trump, my husband didn't feel he could live in the States. And um, and I also um, uh, I, I felt a, a sense of despair for our democracy. Um, 
at that time. And so the decision was literally made overnight that we would move here. And then we set about um, shifting our lives. It took a couple of years. So we only um, we only actually arrived here just before um, just before COVID lockdown. And it looks like you made the right choice. You seem to be <laughs> flourishing. But this idea of despair for democracy, I just like to kind of circle in on that because of so much work you did worldwide to try to help clear a path for democracy to succeed. What is it like for you, even from Canada? I mean, it's a, it's a, close, a close view you have of what's happening in the United States now with democracy. Yeah, great question. Um, a kind of big soup that, um, uh, that I think on a deep inner level, I'm still working through. Um, the good news about the pandemic is that it's been an amazing time for shifts, um, for very vivid shifts that have needed to happen, that were percolating, and, and, and now they've really occurred. Um, uh, in a lot of the places where I worked, um, where we, we were giddy about the democracy to come, um, it's not there now. <laughs> Hungary um, has uh, really struggled. Um, uh, Romania in a difficult place. Um, uh, human rights um, has a long way to go in China um, uh, alongside its economic development. So a lot of the places where the future imagined, not just by me or by outsiders who were supporting this process, but by visionaries in country hasn't been realized. Um, we also, um, uh, many forces, Black Lives Matter not least, um, uh, have been propelling a deep rethink about philanthropy and about development aid and the, the power dynamic um, that is that is inside those of us who who help from um, what has become known as as the global north supporting the global south. So there's a pretty painful introspection going on for um, uh, for people like me who spent the early years of our career um, working in a different way than um, than is occurring now. Um, so, so that's a, that's a big soup. What I've also reflected a lot on, and this, this kind of comes to the present and the work that I'm doing is that, um, we, we apply a lot of moral judgment and moral meaning to what goes on in certain societies. And I, I realize I can get kind of abstract here. So I want to get very real. What I've discovered is that um, a lot of what occurs to us in our lives, in our personal history and in social history is, is, is in our bodies. It's not that people have good minds or evil minds. It's that we live, and neuroscience is, is validating this now, we live foremost in our bodies and from our bodies. And it's our nervous systems that are reacting to things like cruelty and suffering. 
and and yet we we tend to apply this good and evil. Um, we we judge societies and cultures around um, some of the suffering that has been with people for a long time. Um, I don't want to sit here and say Canada is perfect. Um, and we've certainly had a year of big suffering. And something that's that's going on here in British Columbia that um, that we are all working through is that um, uh, about 10% of our provincial population is First Peoples. It's um, what might be known in the States as First Nations, um, uh, pejoratively known as, as Indians, um, the, the original um, indigenous communities um, that have lived in upstate New York, um, also here in British Columbia. And as you may have seen in the global media, uh, in May, um, not far uh, up island here uh, in British Columbia, a grave site of um, children who were um, who perished at the local red residential school. Um, it was known about, so I won't say discovered. It very much came to light, and it's triggered for us a national trauma and also a reconciliation process. So. So I am part of a society in healing now. And I lived also for 12 years in South Africa at the end of apartheid. I chose to make my home there. And I lived as a citizen and a participant in a society in healing. And I do see that um, as a process that the, that the US is going through, will continue to go through. Yes, with a whole George Floyd murder, it's been a exactly. similar sort of tearing apart and looking at racism and its many exactly. layers. Yeah. So, so I, my my work, my life at 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 several stages personally has gotten to a place where words and talk fail to make meaning of what I'm experiencing. Um, this can be at the extreme edge of experiencing cruelty oneself or seeing injustice or watching others be harmed and suffer. So, so something that, again, came to me by accident in a way or circumstance was in 2017, um, uh, my father, um, an amazing man, um, Pete Bassler, was, um, was unwell in and out of hospital and ultimately dying. Um, and I couldn't make meaning of, of this. It was absolutely surreal. And, and so I relied on all the tools that I knew. Yoga and meditation were important for me. And um, I was in Newfoundland and just feel, I, couldn't, I just couldn't sit down and make pottery. I, the clay just fell all apart. I was in my studio and I just, I couldn't center the clay. And I said, I, gotta, I just got to get to the yoga class. But I couldn't go at the normal time, so I went to a, a different class, and it turned out to be something called neurogenic shaking. And I said, "Oh my, oh, <laughs> I just want yoga." And that that little um, uh, fortunate error or circumstance led me into the whole world of TRE, so neurogenic shaking for the release of trauma and tension. 
And I practiced from that day and for many years thereafter. Um, uh, and I found it had incredible benefits for my body. Um, it got me in tune with my nervous system is kind of the new lingo. It helped me stay regulated, also new, new lingo. And nowadays we would say it was a big part of staying resilient. Resilience is kind of the buzzword of the day. So when I, when I moved to this city, didn't know anybody, could feel, could anticipate COVID coming on, could feel the shutdown coming. I said, I've, I've got to find a group that does this because I'd always done it in class and I couldn't find anybody. Um, And um, I, I looked in a global directory because there are thousands of instructors around the world and 70 countries now. And I found one on a nearby Gulf Island. And I called her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, Therese, the whole world of neurogenic shaking is going online. And there were free classes popping up that we could join, any of us who knew the practice. And in a very short time, um, the process of certifying to become a provider, a qualified provider in this healing modality also shifted online. And I said, I want a place in that. I want a place in that training. And so I became certified in 2020. Um, I spent a lot of lockdown time reading about trauma, studying about it, journaling about my own experiences and and practicing this neurogenic shaking, these exercises that elicit our natural tremoring response for reset. Um, That's what I did in 2020. And and now I'm I'm a fully or more fully fledged provider and I work from this virtual studio. I only work online, but I've been able to support healthcare workers and first responders and um, a lot of folks who are struggling or whose own toolkit just isn't serving them during COVID. They've gotten to that edge where they can't make meaning of what's happening. Um, There's a continuous state of dread and uncertainty Um, or discomfort. And the really cool thing that I can do now is, is, is in a few lessons, in classes, in virtual communities of practice, I can help people acquire this tool so that they can keep themselves regulated. And, and this is something I think I'll continue to do and study for as long as I'm able to. It's just become a really important part of my work. So when words fail, go into the nervous system. Um, And lately I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about this new learning um, and its application. And, um, uh, and there's so much coming out now on trauma. Thankfully, it's kind of a, a blizzard of new materials and thought leaders and books. And um, I recently read uh, a piece about nervous systems and political difference, which was very interesting to me. And, And it looked at the unproductive ways our society is fragmenting, dividing. Um, And I'm sad to say this is happening in the town where I came from. And, and so it was offering this other this other pathway. And it was saying, 
the this was a simple blog about what happens when the relatives don't agree at Thanksgiving or <laughs> Christmas dinner? How do you deal with these political differences? And this is something that is familiar to me um, with with people I care about a lot. And so this this advice, if you will, was to to look at the look at look at the wounded place. So look at the wounded place in me. Um, that may be my despair about where democracy is or other experiences or these these experiences I've had internationally. Look for the wounded place in the person you're trying to connect with. And that's going to make it easier to find common ground. Um, uh, and and that that conversation then leads into lots of new writing, podcasts, and so forth about collective and intergenerational trauma. And, and this is something, even in preparation for our conversation today, that I've been puzzling through. Um, uh, just down the road from where I grew up and where I lived for 10 years um, was the Dietz Massacre or something that was known at the Dietz Mass as the Dietz Massacre. The Enterprise has written about it quite a few times. And I, I notice in myself um, at this age and with what I've lived through and the work that I do now, how I've, I'm, I'm looking at that again. And, and seeing life differences, conflict through the lens of the nervous system means we're less likely to judge someone, more likely to be curious and compassionate. So now I say, well, what was it like for the first peoples who lived in the hill towns? They weren't my ancestors. They, were, they came from Europe. They weren't the first people to live there. What was it like for first peoples when others came? And what was it like for the generations who came after the Dietzes and lived in the hill towns knowing that a family had been slaughtered? What was it, what was it like? Was there fear? What did that mean for how, how land ownership was perceived? How protecting one's land was embodied? Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm just beginning to look at that in a new way. And I'll, I'll flip that to, to another lens. One of the things I remember from growing up in the hill towns and in Bern is that it was completely normal to drop in, um, you know, to go to just pop by somebody's front door for a reason, for no reason to say hello, to bring support, um, uh, dropping in was normal. I've lived all over the world, never anywhere that I've lived since is dropping in as normal as it was um, uh, in, the, in the hill towns. And the way I see that now is that it was, it was a kind of, it was a, a, a cue of safety. It was a, a daily symbol of trust. And it, it was, in so many ways, the social fabric that I grew up with. And, and so as we look at, at societies that are fragmented, 
um, or in conflict or in troubled times. Um, uh, it's it's also important to to look for for the for the wisdom, for the integrity, for the adaptation that's come around the suffering and the wounds. And here we get back to the red thread, because one of the things I think I became able to do from my work in um, in hotspots, in places of conflict. Um, I also worked in natural disaster, in earthquake, in, in Pakistan. Um, instead of holding all the suffering in me with a sense of, of helplessness, um, somehow I cultivated an ability to, to, to see the people who had the vision to move through, I guess you could call it, see the people who were going to be courageous despite suffering, who were going to be both vulnerable and brave and had, and had the, the, um, uh, the either natural or cultivated um, toolkits of resilience, I guess we would call them today, to lead through. And so it was by being able to support and resource those people that I, I feel I was able to do um, meaningful work in the world. And now, nowadays, I don't travel, haven't been on a plane for two years. I haven't driven a car in two years. I mostly bike or walk. I am, I am through Zoom able to support leaders who are doing courageous things. Um, and that's what I do from a still and, and as, as often as I can show up centered, I try to show up as a centered supportive healing presence for others, um, from here. And so that seems like, um, a good way to spend this, this, um, penultimate chapter of life, my sixties onward as, as long as I can. So that's, that's a lot about the red thread. Melissa. Uh, but what a marvelous thread. And I love the way you've you've woven it through not just the fabric of your own life, but through the fabric of what we cover here in Altamont, the Helderberg Hilltowns, going back to the Dietz massacre. That's just fascinating that you're looking at now from what those original people felt when the outsiders came, as well as looking at what those European settlers felt for generations. And I am particularly interested, and I wish we had another half hour about this idea. I recently ran across it covering um, a man and a woman, not a couple, a descendant of slaves and a descendant of slave owners who travel the country talking about a book they've written. And it gets to the same idea you have of this generational passing down of what the trauma has been for a people. And just, I love your idea of breaking out of that to communicate with people through where they're most vulnerable or where they've been wounded, because it just seems like that is all of us in some way are suffering over something. And if we can find a common ground there, because you're right, the divisiveness just in the last several years has has exploded. And I wish we weren't out of time, but I hope you can leave us I hope you can leave us with a few parting words that we can ponder. 
I'm I'm going to leave you um, not with words from me, but um, uh, uh, in looking over in the last these last weeks, inspiring sayings that capture. I'm going to leave you with two. Um, one is by a um, living teacher um, and the founder of something called somatic experiencing, also another powerful practice, Peter Levine. And, and Peter Levine will say, trauma is a fact of life. It doesn't need to be a life sentence. I think that's really important. And then there's another um, uh, interesting author uh, wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. His name is uh, Resma Menachem. He's, he's, he's risen to quite a celebrity since Black Lives Matter. He's, his writings are very interesting. And, and he would say trauma, trauma in a person when it's decontextualized. So other words, when it's, when it's settled in and we look, look at it um, uh, as behavior might be called a personality. Trauma in a family, when it's settled in and decontextualized, can become known as family traits. Trauma in a whole people, when it's decontextualized, can become known as a culture. And this is where I think if we, if we judge wounded people um, uh, too harshly, uh, this is a quick road to discrimination and bias and fragmentation. And so we have a whole new body of knowledge and practice that COVID is, is, is helping propel um, that will help us heal and avoid that. And, and I want to be on that train. 